in Romans chapter 12 and uh, read from verse 6 down to verse 8, uh, almost to the end of verse 8, but not quite. We'll stop just short. But uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning our reading uh, in verse 6, where the Apostle Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence. And we'll leave our reading there for this evening. So we come tonight to the sixth of our spiritual gifts listed here in Romans chapter 12. And we're looking tonight at the gift of ruling, or as we shall call it, the gift of administration. Now, this gift, as the biblical term suggests, refers to some form of governance, and it carries with it the notion of management and of organization. In Romans 12, 8, the word ruleth literally means he who is placed in front. So this is about someone who takes charge of a particular ministry or area of ministry, someone who is leading the church or leading a group of people within the church in some way. And the reference is to anyone who holds a position of superintendence within the local church. Now, of course, we might immediately think of that in terms of the pastoral role or the role of elders, but it doesn't uh, just apply to pastors and elders, although pastors and elders do have a governing role in the church, but it applies to anyone who has any area of responsibility where they are given a leadership role and are looked to to exercise a degree of management and administration of that role. So the one with the gift of administration is one who has the capability of taking over a particular ministry or project uh, and leading it in a particular direction. They're the kind of person who never turns a drama into a crisis. The administrator has a good eye for organization, has a good idea of order, and in every church we find that there is this need for a few such people who can step up and who can say, well, you know, I will fulfill this role and uh, that the Lord will use me and uh, believe that they have this gift and that, of course, will become evident as they exercise it. We want to think about the characteristics of the gift, first of all, and then we're going to look at our Bible character tonight, Nehemiah, and think about how he exemplifies the gift of administration. So in terms of this gift and its qualities and characteristics, the first thing I'd say to you is that administrators are, by nature, visionary. Uh, they have this ability to envisage the bigger picture. So they see where they're wanting to go, they understand the framework that they're working to, and they formulate tangible goals in, in getting to that point, an appropriate action in reaching those goals so as to ultimately achieve their purpose. They have what some people might describe as tunnel vision. 
you know, if you give them something to do, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to be distracted uh, by this thing or that. They're going to get whatever they've been asked to do done. And uh, they will see where that project is going and see it through to the end. Administrators show tremendous efficiency. Uh, Their motive, their motivation is to arrange things well and also to delegate ably. They have a good idea as to how a thing should be approached, the methodology that should be applied to a particular assignment, and they will be able to order their thoughts in such a way as to build toward the end goal. And so they can take a big project and they break it down into smaller goals and they set a plan in order and then they successfully attain that goal. Administrators do not suffer fools gladly. If you get in their way, they're likely to push you out of the way. They are no-nonsense people, okay? They don't mess about. They're trying to get something done. They want to get it done. And either you get on board and help them in doing it, or they're likely just to set you aside and forget about you. So, you know, they're busy people by nature. You know, the expression is, if you want something done, what? Ask a busy person, isn't it? And I think there's a lot of truth in that, actually, uh, that people who are busy tend to be the people who get things done. And so uh, they don't waste energy, and speed of delivery is a priority to them. They want to get to where they're going quite quickly, and so they're very focused. Administrators are alert and resourceful. You know, they have an awareness of the resources necessary to achieve their goal, their, their project, and, and they know who and what might be available to complete the task or tasks at hand. Now, most people tend to underestimate uh, certain things when, when you're given a project. You tend to underestimate how long it's going to take to achieve that project or how much it's going to cost or the, uh, the amount of manpower that might be required, you know, how many people are needed to, to uh, perform this particular uh, ministry. You know, we, we had our um, children's treasure hunter at Christmas, and it was quite remarkable, wasn't it, how many people that treasure hunt took up. You know, it wasn't just the guys who were positioned around town in, uh, in biblical dress, uh, but behind them there were other people working in other areas. And I don't know how many people we had working all together uh, on that, but I dare say we, we had probably close to 20 anyway. Um, you know, if we were to sit down and count them up between the people who served outside and drinks, people in registration, the people who set up the uh, scene for the nativity uh, scene and so on. And you put all of that together, you know, the requisitioning and, and everything that took place, it, it was quite, quite a, a lot of manpower was involved. An administrator would recognize that. You know, he wouldn't get to the day and say, oh, you know what, I forgot. I forgot to get somebody to put together a stable. That'd be a bad job, wouldn't it, if you were doing a, a project like that? Or I forgot to get someone to you know, serve at the table here and, and have, have uh, drinks and, 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 uh, and biscuits ready for the kids when they come back and so on. So, you know, administrators, they take things into account. They understand uh, what needs to be done with reasonable accuracy and they can tell uh, whether or not a particular project is viable or not, whether it's feasible with the amount of money you have, the number of people you have, with the gifts that they have, and the resources at hand. Administrators know how to delegate. Uh, those with this orientation tend to delegate well and to do so ably. 
and wisely. He can tell what others are capable of and will grant responsibility according to their ability. So he will note, for example, if you're good with, uh, if you're good with your hands, uh, he will give you hands-on jobs. But on the other hand, if you're good with paperwork, he might then give you a more sort of clerical role in a particular project. And they also tend to remove themselves from distracting uh, details in order to focus on the ultimate goal. Administrators are able to withstand pressure. And we'll see this in the life of Nehemiah. They're willing to endure criticism from others if it means achieving their stated goal. So, you know, if they're going to go from A to B and you stand in the middle and you say you can't do that, um, you know, they're not going to, they're not just going to be buckle under that and say, oh, well, so-and-so says I can't do it, so I can't do it. Uh, or, you, or you're critical of what they're doing. They generally tend not to respond well to criticisms and endure criticisms. So in every church, there's two kinds of people, isn't there? There's those who want to do everything different. You know, there's probably people who thought, oh, when we get a new pastor, things, everything will be different. Okay? And then there are other people, and they're at the other end of the scale, and they say, well, we've always done things this way. And they don't want anything to be different, okay? And the pastor usually sits between those two <laughs> extremes, and he tries to keep them together. The people who want wholesale change, and the people who want no change whatsoever. And uh, usually uh, the leader is in between those two extremes and is trying to, uh, trying to move forward with everybody on board. So an administrator, a good administrator, knows how to change things or if things should be changed, when to change things. And he knows what's best left as it is because it's working. You know, the old worldly saying is, if it isn't, uh, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And uh, that's true in church life too. You know, if things are working, why dabble with them? You know, if, if, if something's serving well, uh, leave it be. So that said, uh, he, will, he will buckle himself for criticism from either one of those camps, from those who will criticize him because he made a change and they didn't want anything to change, and those who will criticize him because he didn't go far enough in changing things and in, in his ideas. Uh, he, he'll take both sides of that criticism uh, gladly as he proceeds toward his goals. And he'll also take opposition from other people without batting an eyelid. Should that come from other Christians uh, or churches or from the lost? Uh, you know, one of the things I learned early on in pastoral ministry is that you have to grow a thick skin, okay? A very thick skin, okay? Um, and you just have to learn to deal with criticism, and if you can't deal with criticism, this is not the position for you, okay? Because that's just the nature of the ministry. Um, you know, you folks know me, I think, well enough by now to know that I can be quite lighthearted. And uh, sometimes, in one of my one of my ministries, my wife used to tell me certain people had said certain things about me, and uh, and I used to laugh, and I used to say, they can't have meant that. <laughs> And she would say, they did mean it. And I'd say, no, no, they were only joking. And she'd say, you don't, you don't get this, do you? <laughs> and so a lot of the criticism was just flying over my head. I was enjoying it. <laughs> I was going home and laughing about it. <laughs> and my wife was taking it to heart, and she was like, oh, you know, it's terrible what this person has said about you. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm impregnable in that respect. Nobody is. But I think when you're in leadership... 
whatever point of leadership you may be at, whether it is the point of pastorate or whether it's some other area of ministry, you have to learn to deal with criticism and to accept that there will be critics both within and without. Whenever you start doing anything for the Lord, let me tell you something. There are people who have the spiritual gift of criticism who will come out of the woodwork who think it's their duty to pull you apart. And that's all they do. They just carp and pull you apart. And those people are just to be ignored, okay? Uh, I don't waste time on those people, and you ought not to waste time on those people either. Administrators seek loyalty. You know, to function, he requires a foot and a degree of confidence in him and a sense of loyalty from the people uh, who he is serving and who are serving alongside of him. And the administrators are motivational. They generally inspire others to do what they are doing well. So they see somebody has a gift, they see somebody has an ability, they put them in that post and they motivate them to give to the best of their ability in that particular area. And so they tend to encourage, to praise, to build up, uh, to signal approval, to challenge sometimes, uh, and to motivate. Now, they're not insincere in any of that. They won't come along and just flatter you. If you're doing a bad job, they'll probably push you to the side and find somebody else who'll do a better job. Or they'll bring somebody alongside of you who will help you do the job better. But generally speaking, administrators bring out the best in people. And then they have a joy and a fulfillment in seeing the project completed. Now, I want to think about this in the life of Nehemiah. And I want you to go to Nehemiah now and to chapter 1. Because here's one of my heroes of the scriptures. I love Nehemiah. I love his attitude. One of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible is, is at a point where he's, you know, he's looking for counsel, he's looking for wisdom, he can't find any, and he, and he utters this that line that always makes me smile when I read it in the scripture. He says, so I consulted with myself. <laughs> and, I, and I love that thought, that he couldn't find anybody smart enough to talk to, so he just spoke to himself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that always makes me laugh when I read that, when I read that line. But Nehemiah is a great character, and, uh, and what he's involved with in this book was an amazing uh, project in the context of history. This book tells the story of the third wave of returnees from Babylon or Persia, as it now was. And uh, remember that following the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the captivity of the Jews, the people were put into exile for 70 years in Babylon, and they began to return. They returned in three waves, first of all under Zerubbabel, then under Ezra, and the third wave of returnees come back under Nehemiah. So under Ezra, the returnees build the temple. And Ezra and, and Zerubbabel uh, that, uh, that worked together, the governor of Judah uh, and, uh, and uh, Joshua, the high priest, they worked together and they, they, they ultimately complete the building of the temple. But the city walls of Jerusalem are still damaged for, you know, for decades now. They've been lying in ruins for a century uh, where the Babylonians had destroyed them and hadn't been rebuilt. And Nehemiah comes along and his God-given task is to restore those walls, to build those walls. So he took this as a matter of uh, reproach, uh, as a bad testimony upon the Lord, upon the Jews, the fact that the people of the city of Jerusalem had returned 
and had done nothing to to uh, rebuild the walls of the city. Look in verses uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. It says that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, that is, those who had returned, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So what did Nehemiah envisage? Well, he envisaged removing what he understood to be the great affliction and reproach of God's people by rebuilding the walls of the city. Now, let's say these city walls had been in a state of repair uh, for the best part of a century, and nobody had thought to themselves, let's get these walls rebuilt. Let's build this city up again to where it once was. But Nehemiah saw that it could be done. He was a visionary. And he saw that this was a project that could be done. And he set about organizing the same. Look in chapter 2 and verse 5. And he says, And I said unto the king, this king Artaxerxes of Persia, Then I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. He says, look, a hundred years these walls have lain in ruin. Give me the tools, give me the time. I will go back and I will rebuild it. So he envisages the restoration of the city and its walls. And he showed typical efficiency of an administrator by breaking down this rather large challenge into smaller achievable Parts. And if you go to chapter 3, we'll not read the entirety of chapter 3, but you'll see how Nehemiah organized the people into smaller groups, working on their own section of the walls. It says in verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brother and the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it. They set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mea. They sanctified it unto the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him, beside him, built the men of Jericho. And next to him, builded Zachar, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And as you continue reading down that passage, you see that beside each group was another group who were tasked with a small section of the wall, or of the gates of the wall, or a particular part of the, of the gates, or whatever it was, and each one played. Their role, and in many ways, that's how best churches work. Churches work well when we all play our little role, whatever that may be. So, that could be as simple as you know, cleaning church, that could be as simple as setting out communion, or it could be you know, seeing people in at the door, or whatever, all the way through to the music ministry, to the preaching, to the Sunday school, and those things that perhaps are more visible to those who come in. Uh, but all of it's important because all of us are working to the same end, I trust, and we're all seeking the glory of the Lord, and we're all seeking the advancement of his kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. But that doesn't come down to just one person. Churches that work well serve as a whole together, okay? And everybody pulls their weight, and everybody does what they can do. 
And so the whole ministry is blessed and helped by each person playing his or her part. Now, Nehemiah didn't suffer fools gladly. And, you know, I talked about how he said he would consult with himself. Uh, This is another moment in which I always smile at Nehemiah. I don't recommend this as as a matter of pastoral theology. You know, as, as to how pastors ought to behave. But I think it's sometimes how pastors would like to behave. In, uh, in chapter 13, if you want to turn there, and uh, I want you to, see, you to see that he didn't suffer fools gladly. He was a no-nonsense leader. If you messed him about, he was, he was done with you. He washed his hands off you effectively. And uh, he, didn't, you know, he didn't take, take uh, nonsense from anybody. And uh, in verse 23 of this chapter... It says, in those, days also, in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children speak half in the speech of Ashdod. So half of these children growing up spoke in this uh, foreign tongue and could not speak in the Jewish language, in Hebrew, but according to the language of each people. So remember that one of the ways in which the Babylonians and the Assyrians operated was that when they took people captive from Jerusalem or anywhere that they took Israel, and they they took them and they dispersed them throughout their empire, and those other people in other parts of their empire, they would have taken and had them settle in Jerusalem and then Israel. So hence you find that when they're working on these walls uh, and they're involved in this particular course, you have these, this presence of people from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and other foreign nations. So that's what happened there. And so the children of Israel, instead of maintaining their separation and their distinctiveness as God's people, uh, began to become unequally yoked and to marry uh, with the pagan women. And verse 25 tells us Nehemiah's response. And I contended with them. I argued with them. I confronted them. And I cursed them. And I smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. Now, that's what I call pastoral ministry right there. Amen? (laughs) Step out of line. That's what you can expect to get. Okay? You folks are home for change in the pastoral ministry. This is the way it's going. Okay? (laughs) So... So he, he actually strikes some people. He gets so upset that they've done this. He's punching out at some people. And he's plucking off their hair. And, and he makes them swear by God. Saying you shall not give your daughters unto their sons. Nor take their daughters unto your sons. Or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women or pagan women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God and marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. And I love this. Therefore, I chased him from me. He threw him out. <laughs> okay. He got him out of his, way, out of his life. Um, now, that's, that's a no-nonsense approach. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, in other words, he wasn't prepared to jeopardize the work that they had been engaged in by sinful behavior and by the folly of the Israelites in marrying 
uh, pagan women. So administrators are an interesting bunch because they don't worry about losing people who are not really committed to the common goals, who, uh, who stand in the way of progress. So it doesn't matter uh, you know, how wealthy a person is. It doesn't matter whether or not they have family connections. Uh, you know, it makes no difference to him. Uh, he is getting to a particular point and he's prepared to sacrifice people along the way. If that's what's needed, he'll deal with them and he'll let them go if he has to. Okay. Now, I would say you know, that I, I believe that this is one of the gifts that the Lord has given me. And I, I identify a lot with these, uh, with these traits. You know, so when I was at Milton and we were building our church building... And, uh, you know, it was, it was a big project, as you can imagine. You've all been part of this building program, and many, well, many of you were. And, you know, it's a big project, isn't it, when you take on a church building? And so, you know, very early on, uh, I don't know what happened here at Points Pass, but I can tell you what happened at Milton. Very early on, there were people that I met with along the way who said they didn't agree with us building a new building. And I said, that was fine. And I just carried on. <laughs> And then I had some people who took me aside and they told me in no uncertain terms that they wouldn't give a brown penny to the building of the building. And I said, that was fine. The Lord would provide and that we didn't need their money anyway. And we would carry on. And we carried on and we got the building built. But that's the nature of an administrator. Now, we did lose people in the process. There were people who left during that time, particularly in the early part of the project. Uh, There were people who left because they got unnerved by such a big project. I don't mean hard on them because it was quite daunting for all of us. Uh, And so some of those people got cold feet and they went to other churches. One man uh, came back several years later and he acknowledged that he was wrong uh, to have left and uh, that we were right to build the building. And I was appreciative of his uh, humility and, and the gracious response that he made in that respect. But, you know, there would be this temptation on the part of some, well, well you've got to go and chase those people and get them back. But an administrator thinks to himself, well, they're just going to hinder things. <laughs> so why get them back? Let them, let them go on and let us do what God has told us to do. And then we'll see where we are once we've achieved the project. So it's not being careless or you know, lacking in compassion for those people, but there's a recognition that uh, some people are just not going to uh, be committed to the common purpose, to the, uh, to the goal that the Lord has laid upon your heart. So Nehemiah knew what he needed for his project what, and what, uh, might be, what needed to be available uh, to complete the task at hand. If you look at chapter 2 again and uh, verse 6, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 6. Now remember, he's a, he's a cupbearer, the king Artaxerxes. Effectively, what Nehemiah does is he tastes food or wine for the king. Before the king eats anything, he tries it. If he doesn't fall over dead, the king is happy to proceed and have his meat. It's quite a job, isn't it? I can't imagine there's too many applicants for that. But nevertheless, uh, Nehemiah, that was his role. He was the cupbearer. And so he appeared before the king every day. And uh, he comes before the king this particular day. And the king notices that his disposition is one of sorrow and sadness. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the king asks him what, what the problem was and you know, how he can help him. In verse 4, what does thou make request? And notice he says, so I pray to the God of heaven. 
And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. There's his vision. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now notice that. He, he knew how long it was going to take him to do this. You know, when you think about, I was just thinking about this, this is just my kind of warped mind, but I was thinking the king was probably going to be on a diet whilst Nehemiah was gone. Because <laughs> there was nobody to taste his food. <laughs> how long are you going to be away exactly? Um, but anyway, he sets him a time. He knows exactly how long it's going to take. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river. He says, I'm going to have to deal with uh, various borders along the way here, getting back to uh, Jerusalem. I'm going to need a passport. I'm going to need your blessing. I'm going to need your help that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. Now, if you've, if you've ever read the inside of your passport, that's basically what it says, that uh, Her Majesty the Queen asks whoever it may be that receives the passport, that they will aid you in your journey to wherever you're going. So effectively, this is an Old Testament form of the same thing. And then in verse 8, and there was a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Now he's talking about physical requisition, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me, according to the good hand, of my God upon me. So he requested certain resources from the king. And notice how orderly his approach was before King Artaxerxes. He waited for a certain time before he approached him. He knew how long it was going to take him to achieve his goal. He requested letters of introduction to government officials between uh, Persia and Jerusalem. And he requisitioned timber. He got the materials in place in order to do what needed to be done. Now, Nehemiah did not himself get involved in the building work, uh, but he removed obstacles that prevented others from fully engaging in the work, including financial pressures. Look at chapter 5 and uh, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there are that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So essentially you have these people who were hamstrung financially, that they were requiring loans to help them survive from day to day, to pay their taxes. It's never a good thing if you're borrowing to pay taxes. That's what they were doing. And uh, as a consequence of their inability to repay the loans, they had to sell their own children into slavery. Now, that's very demoralizing, as you can imagine. You know, who, who's going to be in a position where they are thrilled 
at building the walls of this city, knowing that they can't afford to live in it, knowing that their children are bound to another person. And notice Nehemiah's response. Again, it's a no-nonsense response. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Here it comes. Then I consulted with myself. And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, You accept usury or interest, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. He put them under pressure. And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It's not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. He said, stop sucking off the people. You know, let the people be. Restore, I pray you, to them. Even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of their money and of their corn, their wine and their oil that ye exact of them. Now, when you think about that, when he does that, what is, what is the likely response from the people who he's helping? Here are these people, and they are bound to the wealthier among them. And their kids are being sold into slavery. And Nehemiah comes along, and he goes to bat for them. And essentially, he gets their children released from slavery. And he gets their homes and their lands restored to them and gives them the capability to make a living again. Immediately... Immediately the whole atmosphere has got to change from one of demoralization uh, to one of encouragement and motivation. Now they're, they're for Nehemiah. They see him as a benevolent leader. They see him as someone who cares about them and who wants them to achieve. So he's motivating them in some sense. Uh, he's helping them. He didn't want the work to be hindered nor his workers to be distracted by side issues. Then he withstood his critics, both within and without the project, in order to achieve his goal. Uh, look in Nehemiah chapter 4 now and verse 7. Here come his critics. It says, It came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, Then they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease." And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. So these people are working under intimidation. They're being threatened by these enemies. And so it's hard for them to concentrate on what they're doing, whilst there are others who are breathing down their necks. He says, Therefore set I, in verse 13, in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord which is great and terrible and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us and God had brought their counsel to naught that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields and the bows and the habergeons. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which built it on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it. Every one with one of his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword guarded by his side and so built it. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large. And we are separated upon the wall one from another. In what place therefore ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye hither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. You see what he, what he did? He, he, he saw this opposition and he effectively organized these people, first of all, to be protected. You know, he had people guarding them. He also had them, you know, with one hand they had a tool, the other hand they had a weapon. So they were building on the one side, but prepared for battle on the other side. And if anybody was cut off from the others and they were isolated, he said, you blow a trumpet and we'll be there. We'll be there to protect you. We'll be at your side. And so he's, he's not moved by the enemies. He's not overawed by the fact that there are people who are opposing this particular construction. Now look in chapter 6, if you will, and verse 1. Here come these same characters. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? You see his tunnel vision. Here are his enemies, and, and, they, and they mean ill against him. And they're inviting him out, you know, come on out, come on out here into the plain of Ono, and, uh, and we'll have a discussion. And he knows that there's malice involved there. And instead of messing with those people, he, he gives this tremendous answer. You know, he basically says, the work's too great. Why would I even bother with you? I'm doing a great work. Why would I come down? Why would I stop doing what I'm doing? To mess with you. To take time for you. I'm not interested in that. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? And he has the right idea about the harping, the carping critic. You know, he wasn't prepared to give them space. He wasn't prepared to give them opportunity. He wasn't prepared to give them a platform. And you know, that's, a, that's the mark of an administrator and someone who understands that they're getting to a particular place and they cannot afford to be sidetracked by some show that's taken place on the side, centered around those who oppose the will of God. Nehemiah's oversight of the project inspired and encouraged the people to get the best out of them. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. 
Here's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see that, like most administrators, Nehemiah had quite an upbeat personality. He had a cheerful and confident spirit. It says, It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now notice this line. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. He'd always come in with a cheerful disposition. You know, he's, he was a guy who, I guess, had a smile on his face, which is all the more remarkable when you consider he's a captive in a foreign land and he's serving the king of that land. Uh, but he comes in each day and he must have given a cheery good morning to King Artaxerxes and he presented him as cornflakes, having taken a spoonful himself or whatever the king was having that day. Uh, and, uh, and the king was very glad to see him. The king respected him. The king had time for him. Notice the king says, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? There's, this is nothing else but sore sorrow of the heart. Then he says, I was very sore afraid. He didn't want to upset uh, the king. These guys were despots largely, and they had a lot of power, and uh, they could have just dispensed with you very quickly. But uh, the king in this instance was certainly uh, someone who was benevolent toward uh, Nehemiah and, uh, and who recognized him as a person of good cheer. So an administrator is someone, you know, there, there are people you meet in church and, and they just, the moment you meet them, your spirit's picked up, isn't there? Say yes, just say yes. yes. If you don't think so, just say yes. <laughs> there are people, <laughs> there are people that you're, you love to see coming. Think, oh, you know what? He's a great person. She's a great lady. I love chatting with that person. Always come away uplifted. Always come away encouraged. And then there are other people. <laughs> and when you see them coming, I go, oh, no, not him, not her. You know, and you and you just don't want because they're they're just discouraging. It's always negative and down. Well, if you're trying to do something big, you know, he's building these city walls, that's his project, or if you're building a church, or you're conducting a ministry, you know, you want to be the kind of person that gives out encouragement, that, uh, that people are happy to see, that, they're in, that their spirit is lifted, not someone who just sucks the life out of the room, you know, that kind of individual who just leaves you, you know, wanting to just, you know, become a Mormon or something, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, leaves you wanting to, you know, just ditch everything. Um, you know, you want someone who's upbeat, someone who's like, yeah, we're going to do this. You know, we're, let's, let's get on. This is for the Lord. And they're always encouraging you along the way. And Nehemiah was that kind of person. He was very skillful at motivating people. Look at what he says them there back in chapter 4 and verse 14. Remember now, they're, they're being criticized. They're being intimidated. Uh, these enemies have said that they're going to destroy the wall, that the wall's nothing. In fact, they said, if a fox go up on it, he shall break down their stone wall, as if to say their work was beneath power, power that it was, it was substandard. And uh, look what he says in verse 14. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Now I tell you what, that's almost like I will fight them on the beaches type speech, isn't it? You know, when Churchill made that speech, it unified a nation against Germany. It was like, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what's going on in Europe. There is no way that man is setting his feet down on our little island. 
That was the idea. And Nehemiah did the same thing. He pulled everybody together and he says, listen, the Lord's on our side. The Lord's great. The Lord's terrible. Now, you, you've got to, we've got to fight for each other. We've got to fight for our wives. We've got to fight for our sons. We've got to fight for our daughters. We've got to fight for our houses. You know, when he gets to the end of that speech, how do you think those people are standing? Do you think they're demoralized? You know what? Our wall isn't up to much of a fox stands on it. It's likely to fall down. Or do you think they're standing there going, yeah, he's right. You know what? Let's stand up to these guys. Let's, let's get at it. Let's get this wall built. He's motivating them. And again, there are people like that in church. There are people who are just motivational, who are, who are, who are encouraging, who, who will push you onward, who will give you a sense of confidence that we're, that we're doing well. And like all administrators, Nehemiah took great pleasure and joy in seeing all of the parts come together in a completed project. Look in chapter 7 for a moment. When the wells were finished and uh, you know, the work was done, he celebrated with the people. He appointed singers and united the people in revival and celebration. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the wall was built and all it was done and had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Then I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, a loyal man. And feared God above many. Now look in chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10. So he gets these singers and he's going to celebrate the occasion. And verse 9 and 10. And Nehemiah which is the Tershatha and Ezra the priest and the, the scribe and the Levites that taught the people. Said unto all the people. This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept, probably with emotion, when they heard the words of the law. And when it, then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He told them to celebrate their work and what God had done through them. And I think, that's, I think that's powerful. You know, if you're really involved, in, and, and I don't know how you fo- folks felt you know, when you first walked into this building, having moved out of the old building, you know, just up the road here. But I imagine that those of you who were worshipping in the old building, when you came into this building, were just thrilled at what the Lord was doing and what the Lord had done. You know, when, again, we were building our building in England, um, I had a young man came along, worked beside, uh, beside me, a young American uh, missionary. And, uh, you know, he came in late to the program. We were, we were almost ready to open the doors of the building when he arrived. And uh, he said to me one day, he, he looked at the building from the outside and he said, you know, he says, you, you, probably, he says, you probably feel quite emotional about this. And I said, I looked at him. I mean, I'm, I, my background is building work, so it's just bricks and mortar to me. And so I looked at him and said, it's just bricks and mortar. You know, it's just a building. It, you know, it's, it's just going to serve its purpose. That's all it's going to do. And, uh, and that was that conversation over. About two weeks later, I got invited in by the builder to come and see the progress. And when I walked into the hall, I started weeping. <laughs> and I just thought, where is this coming from? <laughs> this isn't even me. <laughs> I just was weeping. But it was, it was joy. 
It was, joy, it, was, it was just a thrill of seeing what the Lord had done. And then when we said to the people, you know, come and see the building. You know, it was just absolute joy to watch those people who had served in that church all those years and had prayed for a new building, to see them coming through the door and looking uh, at this building. And, uh, you know, I imagine, I mean, I wasn't here, but I imagine something similar happened here at points past that when you folks came into this building and you, you probably couldn't believe your eyes you know having you know Marie was telling about the old building you know some stories from the old building and make your hair stand on end when there was rats fighting underneath the floorboards and stuff uh, you know that's not happening anymore is it? <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> but my goodness we ought to celebrate the Lord and celebrate what he does and, and when he does it and administrators understand that but as with other gifts, uh, administrators too have their faults. And I'm going to very quickly uh, label some of the faults of an administrator. Uh, administrators may see people as human resources rather than human beings. There's the first thing. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're working in a company and the personnel department is called the human resource department, uh, that's what they see you as, just a resource. <laughs> you're just somebody that makes money for the company. Uh, and if you, know, if, if you die or you take ill guess what, they'll just have somebody else in who's, old, who's another resource. Um, but the danger is in church life, people are not resources. People are men and women for whom Christ died, and each person is important, and we need to take account uh, of each other. And so administrators have to be careful about that. They also may show favoritism to those who show them the most loyalty. So there's a danger if you're an administrator and you're working on a particular project and there are people helping you with it, that they become your inner circle and other people get excluded. And that's, that's a danger. So administrators sometimes struggle with impartiality in dealing with people. Then their ability to delegate and supervise may sometimes look like they're being lazy or wanting to avoid work. And uh, you know, you'll see this. I'll tell you when you'll see an administrator at work. If we ever have a work day here at the church where there's like painting and decorating taking place, if we do any of that stuff, there'll be somebody who'll be walking around and you'll think, that guy didn't do anything. <laughs> but you know what he probably was doing? He was probably organizing people, hopefully. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, so again, you know, when we did this in our church in England, I used to go home and think to myself, I mean, I can, I can paint. And decorate, but when we came to church, although I did paint quite a bit of it, uh, but on work days, very often I didn't paint very much, if anything. And I basically walked around and I'd say to somebody, Now, this is your patch, you, you take care of, you know, I want you to sand those, sand those uh, skirting boards and those, that door. I'd say to somebody else, You know, well, this is your section, I want you to cut in, and, and I'd tell them what to do. And then they'd say, Well, I need this, I need a brush, I need sandpaper. And I'd get them the tools, and I'd be, I'd be running around getting them everything. And they'd be doing all the work. I'd go home clean as a bale. <laughs> and they, I'm sure someone thought, Our pastor doesn't do a stroke. He never lifts his hand to help. But somebody has to do that. Somebody has to be there to oversee the thing and to administer it. And, uh, you know, so, so it, it's possible that uh, that can be misunderstood, misconstrued, and that the workers feel hard done by, uh, by the person who's administrating. They feel like he's not pulling his weight. Uh, also, there's a danger of overlooking serious, ca- serious character flaws just in order to get someone to serve. You can know that somebody isn't quite what they should be as a believer. That their testimony perhaps isn't what it ought to be. 
But they have a particular skill set, a particular gift that you can use. And so there's this danger that you turn a blind eye to the fact that their testimony isn't all that or whatever in order to get the job done. And that's, that's, a, that's an error on the part of the administrator. Um, they also, administrators may also close their ears to suggestions and appeals. Now, this is a good thing uh, with their handling unfair or malicious criticisms. But even there, there's a danger because you know, their ability to endure criticism may sometimes appear as callousness. You know, like, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. Um, so you may come across as cold or indifferent toward people sometimes. Uh, and, and, you know, we've got to watch that. But they can also view valid suggestions with suspicion and constructive criticism as a signal of disloyalty or a threat to progress. Now, if my poor wife is watching in tonight, uh, sometimes this is what happens in our house. <laughs> She gives, she makes a suggestion, and instead of me accepting it as just that, a suggestion, I take it as a criticism, <laughs> and then I'll get shirty about it, and I'll say, you know what, I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor of this church, you know what, not you, <laughs> and we, and we, <laughs> it's not a good conversation, but anyway, um, it usually doesn't, it usually doesn't end well, it usually ends well, it usually ends with, with, well, it doesn't just end well. Uh, but anyway, uh, but, but, uh, but you get the picture. But uh, anyway, um, but you know, I, I, what's, what's going on there is, is that though she's perfectly make, you know, making, possibly making a perfectly valid suggestion, because it's not my suggestion and because it seems to be contrary to what I want to do, I take that as a signal of disloyalty from her. And I'm like, what are you... Who do you think you are? <laughs> What's going on here? You know, you're supposed to support me, and uh, and and we get we get all upset about it. So, you know, if she's watching there, she's probably sitting at home chuckling, and uh, I'll probably get hopefully hopefully she's hopefully she's watching watching the uh, European Cup or something. You know, but anyway, uh, they. <laughs> And then, um, finally, uh, administrators may neglect to explain why things are being done a certain way. And uh, the problem with that now is that you end up that you're doing something and you don't really understand why you're doing it, how it's helping the greater good. And so you become annoyed uh, at that and you feel like your, your work is futile and uh, there's no purpose to it. So... Uh, you've got to be careful about that. But the thing is, churches need administrators. We, you know, a, a pastor fulfills his office, fulfills this role, and his role as overseer of the ministry. Uh, but beyond that office, there's, you know, there's much scope for administration in all kinds of areas in our church life, in a missions program, Sunday school, church finances, youth ministry, music ministry, evangelism, ladies ministry, men's ministry, you know, church events, if we organize a, you know, a church picnic or something, that requires a, an administrator or a Sunday school trip or something, that requires an administrator. Uh, but there's, so what I'm saying is there's plenty of scope for this gift and it doesn't all come down to one person. Uh, it's not just one person that God gifts with this particular gift. And there's plenty of opportunities for those who genuinely possess it, who are walking with the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord. So I wonder, is that you? Do you have a methodical mind? Do you start to work through things and say, you know what, I could do that. I know how to go about that. Well, maybe you've got the gift of administration. Are you a good organizer? Can you motivate people? You know, 
one of the joys of pastoring in the United Kingdom, any part of the United Kingdom or Ireland for that matter, is that pastors work with people who are serving voluntarily. And uh, I remember one time being in the United States of America, and I was having trouble with a woman in, in our church, and uh, she was giving me a terrible time. And I, and I decided to confide in this pastor in America, and uh, this woman had a certain role in the church, and, and I confided in him. And he just looked at me with astonishment, and he said, Fire her. <laughs> And I said, what? He said, just fire her. And, and I said, how can I fire her? She doesn't get paid. <laughs> She's not, and, and he could, because in America, everybody's on staff. You know what I mean? So they have a music pastor. They've got a youth. All these people are paid. They're on staff. And effectively, the pastor is their boss. So if you mess about with them, he fires you. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. In our churches in the United Kingdom, largely, uh, largely everybody is serving voluntarily. So someone who's an administrator in this country, in this context, has to be someone who can encourage people, motivate people, help people to see the greater goal, uh, you know, manage those folks and manage the money and the resources to achieve their end. And, and maybe you're that man or, that, or you're that woman that can serve in this way in our ministry. You know, you may be just the person we're looking for. And if tonight you saw in Nehemiah something of yourself, maybe administration is your spiritual gift. Well, we'll leave it there for this evening. We've got one more gift to do next week, and that's the gift of mercy. All right? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer.